Now, this week, um, kind of in between, we finished up our Christmas series last week, uh, and I'm not ready to jump back into Mark just yet. We'll do that probably on the 9th is when we'll get back into Mark. Uh, but here, we wanted to, I wanted to take a time and do something a little bit, end of the year, going into a new year. Um, so we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, so this morning, we'll be in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. So as we begin the new year this week, I thought it would be good to have a reminder of kind of of what, how God expects us to live in this Christian life. And in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul gives us the basis of how and why we should live transformed lives through God's grace. A little bit of context before we jump into the passage we're looking at. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 14. This comes at, um, this is basically the second half of the chapter. The first half, verses 2 through 10, Paul is giving Titus some instructions that should be passed on to the church in Crete. And it's kind of a code of conduct that deals with important issues of daily living for older men and older women, as well as younger men and younger women. And Paul includes in this code bondservants or slaves that were common in the Roman Empire, and many of whom had likely become followers of Jesus. So in these nine verses, verses 2 through 10, he gives the what to do. Then in verses 11 to 14, he gives the reason, the basis for this transformed conduct, transformed life conduct in the Christian. And that basis, as we start in verse 11, is God's grace. So in verses 11 to 14, we see that the Christian life and Christian conduct is based on God's grace. So let's look at the first two verses here, uh, Titus 2, 11 to 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So in verses 11 to 12, we see that God's grace shows us how to live. God's grace shows us how to live. So let's start with the opening of this verse here. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now this is actually the beginning of one sentence that Paul starts in verse 11 and carries all the way through verse 14. Paul likes to do that. Uh, but this is one long sentence, these four verses here. And the, the way it looks, the, the, the primary subject of the entire sentence is right here. It is grace. Grace is the subject for the whole sentence. Now, other versions alter the word, the word order a little bit better to connect the verb has appeared to the primary subject, to grace. And some of that it would be translated, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for or to all people. Instead of the way we have it in New King James, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. 
So just to clarify the statement in this verse, this reference of bringing salvation to or for all people obviously is not universalism. It's not salvation for everyone just because, but it is referring to the offer of salvation, which is open to all people. This is very similar to Paul's statement in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, who desires God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I've already referenced it once. The verb here has appeared. This is a single word, and it's where we get our word epiphany from. The word literally means to become visible, to display, make an appearance. So Paul seems to be referencing here to the incarnation of Jesus. The first coming of the Son of God was an act of grace. Not only was Jesus' coming an act of grace, the unmerited favor of God, but as we saw in John chapter 1, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Now, a lot of the, the guys I looked at when I was doing some research took this aspect of grace primarily referring to to Jesus and made the whole thing centered on Christ's appearing. And I think that in, in some way that's appropriate. But part of trying to understand this passage is understanding this reference to grace. Is it a metaphysical thing, an attribute of God, or is it solidly only in reference to Christ? And I think that was a big question that, we ha that had to be answered in trying to understand this passage. Is this just referring to Christ, or is this grace some metaphysical divine attribute of God? Well, I think there is reference to Christ's first coming. I, that is in there. But I think we need to understand that it isn't solidly or solely that. I think to understand that grace here is more than some divine attribute. And at the same time, I think it's a mistake to assume that this passage is solely referring to Jesus as grace personified. We need to understand that, that grace is a divine attribute. But there's also this reference of Jesus coming. In other words, it's more complicated than either or. It may be both to some degree. And as I came to understand this passage, I think the primary meaning is of God's divine attribute in us, or working in us, or sanctification. Let me clarify that. I think it's a little bit of both. When we talk about grace here, I think it's a little bit of both, but the primary understanding of grace in this passage is that it's God's grace working in us for our sanctification. Now that takes us to verse 12. And this is where we see that not only did God's grace send Jesus, and I think that's a, the bigger reference to Jesus in that verse, thus providing salvation, but we see that God's grace also instructs those who believe in how to live. 
The first we have here is teaching us. This word teaching is the, uh, was originally used in reference to the training or instructing of children. Uh, or the, and there's a or reference of chasten or discipline with this. The word came to mean train or instruct, though it often still carries that idea of disciplining, chastening, or instruction through discipline. Well, then what is God's grace teaching us? Now, as we look at verse 12, first we see a negative, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. The denying or renouncing is another, as, as another way of translating. Renouncing uh, would be the other way here. Refers to a conscious act of the will. It is to say no, to disown, to repudiate, to turn away from something or someone. The word ungodliness here refers to a lack of reverence Toward God. Now, this word um, is used in Romans 1.18 to describe part of what God's wrath is against. God's wrath has been revealed against ungodliness, and there's a couple other items listed there. It's the same word, ungodliness, that we find in Romans 1.18. Now, this word that we have here is actually the opposite of the word godliness that is found in verse 1 of the book, Titus 1.1. And in 1 Timothy 2, 2. And we'll also see there's another form of, of godliness here in, in a later verse. So Paul's already talked about godliness a little bit in the book. And now he says we're denying, God's grace is teaching us to deny ungodliness. But it also says worldly lusts. Now this term refers to the passions or desires that are all-consuming of a person. Um, the term that the New King James translated lusts here can also be translated as desires or passions. And the word itself is not inherently uh, evil or, or negative. The same word is used in 1 Timothy 3.1 in referring to the office of pastor. He who desires the office of bishop. The word itself isn't inherently bad. But here it is used with the adjective worldly and in the, its connection to ungodliness signifies that these desires are aligned with the world system, which are opposed to God. This is the idea that Paul refers to in Galatians 5.16, 1 Timothy 6.9, 2 Timothy 2.22, and Peter does in 1 Peter 2.11. So Paul first gives us a negative, and I think he, the negative is listed early as is common in Greek writing to provide the emphasis. We have a negative here. Because the denying, I don't want to get technical here, the denying is kind of a little bit offset, and the positive items all describe the verb live. We, we have here, we should live. Now if we look on how we have this uh, set up here. Uh, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live. 
then we have three adverbs, soberly, righteously, and godly. The, the rest of this verse describes the positive attitude of how the Christian should live. We see these three adverbs here. These are all uh, directly connected back to, to live. They, they, they do what adverbs are doing. They, they modify that verb. How do you live? You live soberly, righteously, godly. So soberly. This word can also be translated as self-controlled or sensibly. It refers to a mind or a life that is self-controlled. That is, that has exercised over, uh, over the impulses, excuse me, that has exercised mastery over the impulses and sensual desires of the human life. It has found balance in that mastery of being able to control and live sensibly over the desires that can consume us, especially those that would be contrary to God. The second adverb here is righteously. This word can also be translated as upright. This is a little bit more of a general term of the observable rightness of you will, if you will, the, the observable rightness in all our aspects of life. Forgive the choice. Do we take the, not in right or left, but do we take the right choice? Are we just? Do we act justly? Do we live justly? Do we seek justice? And thirdly, we have godly. Same word. That word that we were just talking about, that ungodliness being opposite of, this is another form of that same, of the opposite of ungodliness. So negatively ungodliness, so how should we live positively? Godly. Our life should show reverence to God who provided for salvation. One author says, says this, godly as a description of life brings together faith, faith in or knowledge of God and its visible outworking in life. As a description of life, godly brings together faith in or knowledge of God and its visible outworking in life. Now, John MacArthur makes a very thought-provoking statement uh, summing up these descriptions. He, he says this, Our gracious instruction could be seen as three-dimensional. The first, living sensibly, could relate to the, to the divine continuing change within us. Divine and continuing change within us. The second, living righteously, connects with our changed relationship toward others, both saved and unsaved. The third, living godly, may refer to our changed relationship to God himself. We are no longer his enemies, but his children. We no longer ignore him, blaspheme him, or use his name in vain, but instead honor him in reverent adoration, praise and worship. So he's seeing these three things as all connected in, in some way. That living sensibly, self-controlled, 
uh, can relate to how our sanctification is progressing and that change happening in our lives. Living righteously connects our change relationship to other people. We deal righteously, justly, uprightly with other people, saved and unsaved. While we live godly is, our, is that change in our stance with God. We are no longer his enemies, we are his children. We no longer blaspheme him or use his name in vain, ignore him, but we revere him, we praise him, we worship him. These three things, so you see how that touches every part of our lives. And then Paul says, in the present age. The end of the verse tells us that this is how we should live as believers right now. The phrase, in the present age, would very, if it was a very strict literal translation, would read, in the now age. Right, the age right now, this is how you should live. It signifies, though, that there is an age to come. That in the future, we won't have to consciously deny sinful passions and to strive to live godly and uprightly every day. God's grace the basis of salvation, teaches us how we should live during this age, the church age. But Paul continues on into the next verse and gives us an incentive and shows that God's grace also shows us the why to live this way. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So in verses 13 to 14, God's grace shows us why we should live this way. Why we should live this way. So Paul continues with that little bit of a look forward in, from, from verse 12. He carries that into verse 13. He says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, a big thing I really had to work through and wrestle with this week was trying to figure out how verse 13 connected to verses 11 and 12 grammatically. <laughs> I am not completely satisfied with what I've come to, uh, but for the most part, I am. I think, for the most part, that it kind of continues that list. Uh, if, we, if we look briefly back at 12, um, if we reorder this a little bit, teaching us that we should, uh, and we're going to skip living, uh, denying ungodliness, teaching us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking forward, looking to the blessed hope and glorious appearing. I think it continues that list of positives of how we are to live in the present age. 
So I think with that hint of the future age given in verse 12, that this is part of how we should live in the manner in the present age, that we look to the future when our salvation is complete. So Paul says that we look forward, but to what? Well, he says the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Now, without getting too technical here, the nouns hope and appearing refer to the same event. Hope here is not a wish, but the expecting of something with confidence, and the, and the word is being used here in the, in the sense of the object or person hoped for, that the expect, what the expectations are focused on. It's the idea here that we confidently trust that whoever or whatever is promised that those expectations will come. It's not a wish, but a confident belief, confident trust in Christ, in God, in the event that is to come, in what will happen. Now, appearing here is epiphania. It's very similar to the word that was used earlier, um, it's very similar to that word epiphany that we talked about a little bit earlier. This word was used in Greek culture to refer to an intervention or appearance of the deities into human lives. So if in, in the culture, if Zeus intervened, it was this epiphany. If whoever showed up, uh, if... Poseidon showed up, it was this epiphany, he appeared. That, that's how this word was used in the culture. It actually has the same root word as the word appeared in verse 11, so they are very directly connected here. We have this two appearings. So we see with that connection, we have this blessed hope and appearing and two appearances in this passage we kind of see what we're looking for we're talking a little bit little bit here about the second coming and looking to that fulfillment now the king james and new king james makes the word glory that is used here into an adjective describing the appearing that's probably how most of us memorize the verse or had heard the verse or are very familiar with it, right? The, the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Well, if hope has the, has the adjective of blessed, well, appearing should have, should have the adjective glorious. That's not the best rendering of this. The word glory isn't an adjective in this verse at all, but is part of the appearing part of what is appearing. This is why the ESV and others translate this verse as like this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a subtle difference, but that's a, but that's a little bit better translation. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. 
So what is appearing? What is the blessed hope? I've touched on it a couple of times. It is the future coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is not taking time here to distinguish the various phases of Christ's second coming. He's not, he's not taking time to draw the dispensational chart and here's the rapture, and he's not detailing this and going through the tribulation and anything else. He's just kind of briefly giving, uh, his point is the culmination of salvation. He's not dealing with all the little intricacies of, of end times here. He's just dealing with the culmination of salvation when Christ and our faith are vindicated in Christ's final victory in a visible display of glory for the whole world to see. So he's not dealing with all the little bitty things. He's just dealing with that final element of Christ's second coming in victory and glory. When, our, when in one way our faith will then be vindicated. Faith will then be vindicated. But he refers to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this verse uh, assigns to Jesus both the title of God and Savior. Now, some try to separate these titles, making the phrase our great God a reference to the Father and Savior the only reference to Christ here. However, the same general construction of this phrasing here is also just above with the blessed hope and appearing. Um, I don't want to get overly technical. If you want to take the time and, and Google it when you get home, it's called the Granville Sharp Rule. Yes. <laughs> you have a single article, a, a specific noun, the and, and another noun. So those two nouns connected refer to the same thing. And the way this is set up, the... God and Savior, what, who, Jesus Christ. So, now there are, I wasn't going to go too much into that. I didn't even, wasn't even planning on throwing out that uh, grammatical wording. But um, there are other statements that can be made around this. Essentially, it's a very similar construction to the blessed hope and appearing. And if hope and appearing are referring to the same event and basically the same construction as the great God and Savior, why would we argue this must be separated? Others say that um, because Paul never uses uh, or because Paul typically uses theos in, re in reference to the Father. He never uses it in, to, in reference to Jesus. This isn't how it's used in the, in the pastoral epistles. There's all these arguments. It, I am totally and completely satisfied with the grammatical argument here. 
that they are tied together and they point to Christ. They are tight, he is titling Christ as not only our Savior, but as the great God, because only God can save. So Christ's return becomes more of a motiv motivator for us when we consider what he has done for us. And this is where Paul, this is what Paul discusses next, starting in verse 14, who gave himself for us. Who gave himself for us? Jesus. Who gave himself for us. Paul is referring directly back to Jesus here and describes what he did. This reference of gave himself for us is a very Pauline in reference to Christ's sacrifice. He uses similar language to this in Galatians 1.4, Galatians 2.20, and 1 Timothy 2.6. And he continues that he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Redeem here, this word is used with the idea of paying a ransom to set someone free. It's not... Um, this word isn't used very often in the New Testament. This is one of very few places that particular word is used. But it's still that idea of paying a ransom to set someone free. Well, a ransom of what? From every lawless deed. Now, lawless deed is a single Greek word, and the idea is being without law. This is the essence of sin, being in open rebellion or defiance of God's law. The same word is used in 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's the same word as lawless deeds that we have here. So Christ's sacrifice ransomed sinners from rebellion against God. Well, that's the first part. The second part, the last part of the verse here, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Purify. This is the same word Paul used in Ephesians 5 in describing Jesus' cleansing of the bride, the church, to make clean or cleanse. And it's used here both, it's used uh, both to make clean or to cleanse, both here and in Ephesians 5. It's that idea of cleansing from evil. His own special people. This cleansing was part of making the church a special people for God's possession. Now, these words, own special, are actually a singular word and more literally means of one's own possession. It conveys a sense of wealth or abundance. It, it has, if you go back far enough, it has this idea of wealth or overabundance and being rich uh, and, and property and things like that. But it has that idea here of special or chosen. Now, this word is used only here in the, in the New Testament. 
However, it is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. And it is used there especially in Exodus 19, verse 5, with that, still with that idea of personal property, conveying the sense of having more than enough. It's used in that context of God claiming Israel as his own possession or as a special people. Now, many take the similarity between Paul's singular use of this word here and the Septuagint and use it to understand that the church as the new Israel or the continuation of Israel as God's special people. That's a stretch. At least two of at least two of the guys I was reading flat out said it, and I went, well, that's nice. Move finding somebody else. But that's a, it's a bit of a stretch for me to make that jump. And even for that little bit of a connection, that seems a bit of a stretch. Now, Peter uses a different term in, in addressing an entirely Jewish... Uh, Peter uses a different term entirely when addressing Jewish Christians in 1 Peter 2.9 and says that you are a chosen people or a special people. He uses a different term entirely. And that's more of a look back to the Old Testament than we have here. I think Paul is simply stating that Christ has paid for our freedom from sin and claims us as his own. I won't take the time now to go through it, but Paul addresses this in fuller detail in Romans 16, 6, verses 17 through 22. Paul also alludes to Christ's ownership of us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So I think Paul is getting here that Christ has bought us and that and owns us, that purifies us in a in, in, in special ownership fashion. Now, zealous for good works, this, this looks back towards uh, uh, the word people here. Um, and actually, <laughs> zealous, it, it, it's a singular word that would actually be more directly translated zealot than zealous, but it has this idea, same idea here. So since we are the Lord's own possession, having been cleansed from sin, we should be motivated to do good works. Before our, our redemption, we did lawless deeds. Now as bought by the Lord, we are able to do good works, works that please the Lord and that proclaim his name and glory. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
That word zealous here has the meaning, has the idea of being an enthusiast. These good works are not to be done as some added thing or adjunct idea of our Christian life, but we should be enthusiastic to do what is right and doing what would glorify the Lord. To summarize these two verses, Warren Wiersbe said in his expository outlines of the New Testament, he put it this way. He summarizes these verses. He says, there are two poles to the Christian life. We look back to the cross, verse 14, and ahead to the coming of Christ, verse 13. These two poles help keep us steady on our Christian walk. These themes are written into Paul's description of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, where we are to remember his death, what? Till he comes. So these, the, so he's summarizing, saying we've got these two markers in our Christian life. We look back to the cross, and we look forward to his coming. And those poles keep us steady on our walk. Why we're doing it, and we look forward to this why. <laughs> We've got two whys of what we're doing, and these things keep us centered here. And then as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember his death, until he comes. Now at, at New Year's, people make all sort of resolutions to lose weight, to save more money, be more present for people, and so on. But do we think about faith resolutions, about strengthening our faith, about studying out passages of Scripture or even memorizing Scripture? What about trying to overcome some sin in our life or be more faithful in prayer, giving, attendance, or whatever it might be? That's something I've tried to do over the last couple of years. Mariah and I each have had Ryan and I each had gotten what are called mindset bracelets. Now, I've got mine linked together here. You can't read them. <laughs> uh, it's just, these are just uh, basic leather, and the wording is imprinted, so it's not embossed, so you can't read it from where you're at. But one reads, choose joy. The other reads, pray first. Now, the bracelet is there to remind us throughout the day to reset our thoughts and to set our minds on these ideas. Don't choose joy. What are, that's a nice little phrase, but what, how do we do this? Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. No matter what is going on, we can 
choose joy. The Lord is in control. We can control only our attitudes and responses. And the tough thing about that verse is it's easy to choose joy when, thing, when the day is going well and nothing seems to be going wrong. But that verse says, this is the day that the Lord has made. So that flat tire, run out of gas, that overdue bill that you forgot about, the Lord is still in control. Ephesians 6, 18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, there are other verses, of course, that talk about prayer. But we need the strength of the Lord to do his work and to accomplish his will. Often we try to get things done in our own strength. We either fail or we fall into pride. Prayer lets us seek the Lord's counsel and strength. Let's start this year with a resolution to grow as Christians and become better disciples of Jesus Christ. As we close in prayer, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to read a, a prayer. This is from the book, The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. Um, they don't have one for everything, but they have a prayer devotion that, that affects many little aspects here. This one is entitled Year's End. We're going to read it as our closing prayer here. It reads, O love beyond compare, thou art good when thou givest, when thou takest away, when the sun shines upon me, when night gathers over me. Thou hast loved me before the foundation of the world, and in love didst redeem my soul. Thou dost love me still, in spite of my hard heart, ingratitude, distrust. Thy goodness has been with me during another year, leading me through a twisting wilderness, in retreat, helping me to advance, when beaten back, making sure headway. Thy goodness will be with me in the year ahead. I hoist sail and draw up anchor, with thee as the blessed pilot of my future as of my past. I bless thee that thou, hast, that thou hast veiled my eyes to the waters ahead. If thou hast appointed storms of tribulation, thou wilt, wilt be with me, with me in them. If I have to pass through tempests of persecution and temptation, I shall not drown. If I am to die, I shall see thy face the sooner. If a painful end is to be my lot, grant me grace that my faith fail not. If I am to be cast aside from the service I love, I can make no stipulation. Only glorify thyself in me, whether in comfort or trial, as a chosen vessel meet always for thy use.
Father, as we think of these words, as we think about the words that Paul wrote, reminding us of the basis of our Christian walk, the how and the why of our, of our Christian life and conduct. Help us to, as we begin this new year, help us to surrender it to you. Help us to walk in faith. Help us to find ways to choose joy, to remember to pray first, to rest in your strength and to trust in you and not in our own strength or abilities. Help us, Father, as we move through this time. Father, we pray that you would continue to guide us and direct us as this year ends and as a new one starts. Keep these verses and these, these meanings in our hearts and minds. Help us to dwell on them, to meditate on them. Help us to continue to grow, to, to walk more steady, to run our race with endurance. Help us to remember the why of why we, uh, of this walk, that because of who you are, because Christ died for, for our sins and has bought us, and because he is coming again and our salvation will be complete and we will be with him in a time without sin. Father, as we prepare to depart, I pray that you would watch over us, help our time of fellowship, give us safety uh, to those who will be traveling. We pray for those that cannot be with us, that you would continue to comfort them and guide them. And Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.